Welcome to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I'm Keely Heron. I'm Pat Wright. And on today's episode of Opera for Everyone, Pat, what do we have the pleasure of listening to? We are going to listen to the most well-known of Antonin Dvorak's operas, Rusalka. And this is one of the episodes where I pretty much don't know anything about the opera at all, so it's your favorite. <laughs> no, I like it all the different ways, but <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. This is opera for everyone. You don't have to know anything about the opera when you come into it. Because, Pat, the, the audience learns along with me. That's my role. That's the idea. Opera yeah. is for everyone. <laughs> Rusalka is a story that if you don't know what Rusalka is or have never heard the name before, you might have heard of The Little Mermaid. Oh, yes, yes. I do remember this part. Okay, good. <laughs> well, what do you know about The Little Mermaid? What I know about The Little Mermaid comes primarily from the Disney version. Okay. Um, but I... I believe that it was based on a fairy tale by Hans Christian Andersen. Yes. Yes. Oh, I did I get that right? You did. It, oh, good. I mean, it's, you know, it's Disney, so they change things around a little bit at the end, and our opera will not end the way The Little Mermaid ended. And I, I wouldn't say that The Little Mermaid by Hans Christian Andersen, which, by the way, was first published in 1837, I wouldn't say that it's an exact, direct antecedent to this libretto, but it is among the antecedents to this libretto. Like many things that we listen to on Opera for Everyone, there are there are source materials that are consulted by the librettists. Yes. And sometimes there's several. And in this case, the librettist's name is Yaroslav Kvapil. He wrote the entire libretto before even giving it to Dvorak. He was not commissioned. He wrote the whole thing, and then Dvorak received it, and he loved it. This was later in Dvorak's career. Dvorak, depending on who you consult, wrote between nine and 11 operas, even though he's mostly known as a symphonic composer or a composer of pieces that are not operas. He's a very prolific man. This is towards the end of his career, it premiered in 1901 in Prague, and it was only three years later that Dvorak died. So this is near the end of his career. The source that Kvapil directly credits with inspiring him to write this is the story Undine by Friedrich de Lamotte Fouquet. He's a German, which was published in 1811, and it is yet another telling of the story of these watery female spirits, these water nymphs. And Friedrich de la Motte-Fouquet was not the first to do this. This, I mean, you could even maybe take it back to consider the Odyssey and the Sirens. Mm -hmm. There's a long tradition of stories of these seductive, somewhat magical creatures. Mm -hmm. And it's usually that those creatures are female and the ones being changed by or entrapped or changed or, or the ones interacting from the world of men, in fact, are men. Right. Doesn't, it doesn't really go the other way. Well, because a lot of sailors were male. Exactly. I mean, adventurers, explorers were male. I mean, there, there is a tradition in some of the Nordic countries where there were female explorers and sailors and adventurers, but not a ton. <laughs> so in, in Greek, we have sirens, 
In German, we have Undines. And in Czech, we have Rusalki. So the name Rusalka is the name of our title character, this, this one particular water nymph. But the general category of these female water spirits is Rusalki. So he's just using the Czech name here for the mermaid. Water spirit, yeah. There are all different names. Water spirits, water sprites, water nymphs, mermaids, sirens, Rusalki. But in our case, Rusalka is, of course, Czech. And and the fact that she is Czech and Dvorak is Czech, it, it's important. And we'll talk a little bit more about the, the nationalistic element here and going into the Czech folklore tradition. So now that I've introduced the Rusalki, I think we should hear the first piece after the overture where we meet a trio of these water spirits, these female water spirits. It's not our lead character here, but these are the sisters of our lead character. And if you are a little bit reminded, just in the existence of the of the three female water spirits opening an opera, if you're a little bit reminded mm-hmm. of Wagner and the ring, you it's that's okay. He uh, Dvorak was a little bit criticized for being too influenced by Wagner at times. It might be part of the whole Czech nationalistic feeling that led to that criticism, but he's not trying to copy Wagner in any way, but he did like Wagner's work. Mm. Well, when you said the three women at the beginning, I immediately thought of Macbeth. Oh, interesting. Well, you know, you these, these three women of powers of other worlds there yeah it's not it's yeah it's not, it's not just uncommon Wagner. no it's, and and the number three is a very powerful number yeah so let's hear the the sisters setting the scene and soon after the sisters start singing we will also hear from the father who is sometimes called the water gnome or the water sprite and that is the the male version of this watery world, but there's just one of him. Oh, <laughs> 
So you've just heard the three water sprites at the very beginning of Antonin Dvorak's Rusalka. And yes. I like that, Pat. The, I really enjoyed that music. It was very bold. He is 
Well, let's put it this way. When he was first starting out and entering competitions, Johannes Brahms was a judge in one of the competitions or a couple of the competitions that he entered. And from the moment he became acquainted with Dvorak's music, he became one of Dvorak's champions. Mm. He was recognized from a very early age as being incredibly musically gifted. But yes, it is bold and beautiful, beautiful music. This is from a very accomplished composer. And part of what's happening in the piece that we just heard is we're setting the scene of the place where Rusalka comes from. Mm -hmm. She is from this magical world. She is from this lush, watery world of these of these playful sisters of this strong father and this this is her world but in our next piece we're going to hear her interacting with her father who i kind of just want to call vodnik at this point which is is how i read the check v-o-d-n-i-k instead of the water spirit the water sprite the water gnome because it gets translated all kinds of ways, but I, I like the name Vodnik. <laughs> Why not? It sounds like a strong, it kingly, does. water king person. So, <laughs> right after that, yes, <laughs> right after the introduction that you've just heard with the setting the scene with the sisters and Vodnik, Rusalka enters. And she has a conversation with her father, and she will say to her father, I'm not happy, I have a sad story. And he wants to know what the problem is. She says, well, I want to leave my home. I want to get out of deep waters. I want to be human. I want to live in the sunshine. I can't imagine he is very happy about that. He's not happy about it, but he's, he's also a little more understanding than I was expecting him to be. Rusalka says, I learned from the tales I did not know that they have souls of which we are deprived and that to heaven rise these human souls when men die. So that is part of this age-old story of these women in the water is that they don't, they don't have souls. Mm. This was introduced by a, a German writer in the 16th century, this concept that they don't have an immortal soul like a person has, hmm. except except they can earn such a soul by marrying a human man. Mm. Which I think would be difficult if you didn't have legs, you know. Well, she she's understood from the stories that she can't go to heaven But she's fallen in love with this man that she's seen, and she also yearns for that part of the human experience, having a soul, and having a soul that will then have an opportunity to go to heaven. Interesting, in the Slavic take, uh, the the Slavic heritage of the Rusalki, it's not necessarily believed that they are these soulless creatures of the water. It's believed that they came into existence this is a little rough, but that the Rusalki came into existence because they were girls who had been drowned in the water, or they were born illegitimate and were not baptized, and so were not considered eligible for heaven. Oh. And so these spirits of the water in the Slavic tradition, from what I've read, are these 
lost, unclean, dead, lost creatures. And so there is a yearning to want to reconnect with the human world. Mm. So it's a lost soul. It's interesting how these stories evolve. And like, I never would have thought of that, that it was about children that were lost because they were illegitimate or they drowned or whatever. But it's like, you can see where those stories would evolve in that way. And that, it sort of makes Yeah, sense. that's just a little bit of the background and the, the Czech heritage of the Rusalki. But none of that is directly confronted in the opera. In the opera, she simply tells her father that she yearns to have a soul like the humans do, to be in the sun, to be out of the water. Mm -hmm. And she's fallen madly in love with this man. Well, and of course, all I can think about is The Little Mermaid, where she sings, I want to be where the people are. Yeah. I want to see, want to see them dancing. <laughs> well, there'll be, there's going to be dancing in this as well. Not yet, but we're, we'll get to some dancing on Earth. She explains to her father that he comes frequently and he swims and that he can't see her because to humans she appears just as a a, a, a movement in the water a wave in the water mm. and so she wants to find a way to become something that looks like human yeah to be seen she wants to be seen exactly and like I say the father is not as harsh with her as you might expect but he also says my dear this is not wise and I cannot help you but he does say, there is someone who can help you. Might not be a good idea, but there is someone who can help you. And he tells her the name, Yeji Baba, the sea witch, like Ursula in The Little oh, Mermaid. Oh, I was going to say, is his name Sebastian? And does he is he a crab? No. <laughs> no. So he does point her in the direction of a powerful sea witch. Once he's done this and he disappears under the water, we have the most famous aria of this entire opera here in Act One, and this is Rusalka's Song to the Moon. And she pours out her heart to the moon about her yearning and her longing and her hopes for her future.
you're listening to Opera for Everyone, and we've just heard from our lead character, Rusalka, in Antonin Dvorak's opera, Rusalka. And Pat, that was quite the aria. Yes, this is the piece which you will sometimes hear separated from the opera. It can be a recital piece, it can be a concert piece. Mm. It stands on its own, and I've even heard people argue that on the strength of this, it maintains its position in the repertoire of certainly Western opera. It's a beautiful, beautiful song. It's, it's plaintive, and she's singing to the moon. She says, you travel around the wide, wide world, peering into human dwellings. Stand still for a while and tell me where my lover is. Tell him, please, silvery moon in the sky, that I'm hugging him firmly. And she goes on and on, and it's just exquisite. Mm. It has that really magical sound, too. I mean, we've talked about, I wish I knew more about instruments so I could say, but it's just that it's like a harp or something. It's got that really fantastical sound. Yeah, it's lush and, and, and lyrical and, and beautiful. So... Once she finishes this, she is going to call out for Yeji Baba. The witch. The witch. Yes, the, it's the one she gets translated in German. She's the hexa, the witch, or the sorceress in French. And we simply call her Yeji Baba. She is the one with magical powers. And Rusalka must summon her. And she shows up. And she's not always depicted this way in productions, but the description of her is someone who is deformed, hmm. not not beautiful like the other water creatures are. Hmm. But Rusalka just focuses on what she wants and says, help me, free me from my captivity. You know how to do it, please help me. And Yeji Baba is intrigued. And they have a little bit of back and forth between the two of them, Yejibaba and Rusalka. And Rusalka will pour on the compliments. You're so smart. You're so wise. You know everything. And Yejibaba's like, yeah, yeah, I know. I know. I know all the, I know all this stuff. <laughs> oh, go on. No, I mean, keep going. Don't stop. <laughs> exactly. No, don't stop. And Rusalka has to respond to Yejibaba's question, well, if I help you, what will you do for me? And Rusalka says, well, take everything I have, but just make me into a person, someone he can love. Can you give me a soul along with a human body? And Yeji Baba says, well, of course I can do that. Yes, of course I can. But what you need to give me in return is your transparent water veil. So she has to give up this element of her that makes her part of the creatures of the water. That, that, that is her transparent water veil is why this man that she's in love with couldn't see her, why she appears to just be a wave in the water. And Yeji Baba wants to get one thing clear with Rusalka before she carries on. She says, you must understand that if I do this for you, you will have rejected your home world. You don't get to come back. You will have severed ties 
with everyone and everything you know from your home. And then here's the kicker, which you probably know, but to all human beings, you will have to remain mute. What? Interesting thing for an opera singer to ask for, hmm? (laughs) Yeah, well, so, okay. So she'll be visible to him. Yes, she'll have a human form. But she won't be able to speak. She'll have no voice. She Hmm. will not be able to make a sound. And she, Rusalka, with really not much thought at all, says, If I'm allowed to know his love, my tongue, I will gladly sacrifice. Seems a bit extreme. Would you recommend such a sacrifice to to a young girl seeking love? No, (laughs) absolutely not. I mean, I don't have a sense of smell, and that's a big bummer. But not being able to talk? It'd be rough. It it would would, uh, hamper communication a little bit. Mm-hmm. I suppose she could learn sign language. And Yeji Baba warns her, if you do return to your native waters, your lover will also find his end here. Forever he will share with you your curse, your eternal damnation. So, in other words, she's got to be all in. She's got to win his love. He's got to marry her. Otherwise, she's an outcast from both worlds. And she just says, well, my love will counteract this magic. She is confident. She is sure. She is so eager to be in the world of the humans, eager to be with this one particular human man, that she says, yes, Yajibaba, you can do this for me. That's great. And she doesn't spend a lot of time dwelling on all these warnings. Yeah, well, so in The Little Mermaid, the Disney version, (laughs) I'm not... I'm not super concerned about Ariel, but um, in this version, but since it's opera, I'm very concerned. Well, it's not your first opera. I think you should be concerned. And, you know, Disney had a way of, of um, making the fairy tales a little happier for the kids. But this is a folk tale. And, well, even the Grimm's fairy tales, for example, they don't... Mm-hmm. Many of them don't have happy endings that we yeah, may no, know. Yeah, they don't sugarcoat it. Right. So these warnings are meant to be taken seriously. Right. They're kind of a way to, like, scare the kids into behaving. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah, so, like, if you get all these big fancy ideas about going off into the land world with the humans, then you could never come back. Yes. But Rusalka has said, yes, yes, yes. Oh, I'm so glad you can do this for me. Thank you. Yes, I'll agree to whatever you say. And she returns with Yeji Baba to her cottage. And Yeji Baba brews up her drink. Let us hear what we translate as abracadabra, where she mixes up this magical potion, which will transform Rusalka. Such a good, 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 such a good
Opera for Everyone, and today we are hearing Rusalka by Antonin Dvorak, and we've just heard a song loosely translated as Abracadabra. That's from the, the witch works her magic. <laughs> yes, so our witch Yeji Baba is turning Rusalka into a human, and uh, there's no going back. There's no going back, and right at the end she says, well, your tongue is going to feel like wood. And from now on, not a word. And we hear Vodnik say, Oh, poor, pitiful, poor, pitiful Rusalka. And then we transition quite quickly to the world of men. Mm. And we see a hunter, and we see the prince, and they are chasing their prey. And I'm going to skip forward just a little bit for when the hunt is over and we see the prince by himself and he's reflecting on his experiences that he's had recently and he feels a sense of magic in the air, a strong magic that chills my heart, he says. Go home, my friends, and leave me here. Well, that's convenient for Rusalka because she is going to get a chance to meet him all on his own. And he sees her. And again, this is such an interesting role for the person who is singing the role of Rusalka because for a large chunk in the center of the opera, she's mute. She says nothing. So she acts it all through. And it, it, when you, if you look at a libretto, it's a little confusing almost if you haven't seen it because yeah. it's just the, the prince speaking. But he does see her and he's trying to get to know her. She's very intriguing. She's very lovely. And I think we should hear a little bit of the prince singing, a little bit of the the naiads, the sisters, the other water spirits, as they realize that their sister, Rusalka, is missing. She's gone. What's happened to their dear sister? And well, we know, but they're a little confused. And the prince is just in ecstasy at this point, having met this otherworldly creature who clearly adores him. Sartipe, 
So we have met the prince who is besotted with the lovely mute Rusalka. And and that is the end of Act One. That is the end of Act One. And he's besotted and he suspects there's some magic at work that this mm-hmm. woman appears who entrances him so. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't worry him. <laughs> Not at all. Well, that's good. Well, is it? I don't know. <laughs> so act two. We are near the palace grounds. Mm-hmm. Because, oh, did I mention that the man she falls in love with is a prince? This man that she's wanting to... This man uh, that she has decided to give up everything for. He is a prince. Well, I got that. Beca- well, and also maybe because in The Little Mermaid, it's it's Prince Eric, isn't it? In The Little Mermaid. I'll take your word for it. Or I could just be making that up. It's entirely <laughs> possible. Anyway, but yes, I knew. You know, I mean, sadly, most of these cultural references, are, or perhaps not sadly, that I get them from Disney, but, you know, whatever. I guess that's why. They're popular. They're popular. Yeah. Well, here we are trying to make the... Uh, the Czech version, Rusalka, popular as well. <laughs> no, it is quite popular in, in opera circles, but opera's for everyone. So stay with us. Act two, we are in the forest surrounding the prince's castle. Mm-hmm. And we see two not aristocratic people, the gamekeeper and his nephew. And they're discussing what's going on at the castle. And... They're getting ready for some festivities, and the nephew even says, I think maybe the prince is going to marry this woman who doesn't speak, that he just encountered, he found her recently, and he seems to be completely in love with her. And the gamekeeper is a little suspicious, and it makes him a little uneasy, thinking... There might be some dark magic behind this with this woman who just appears out of nowhere, as far right. as they're concerned. And she doesn't speak and doesn't at speak. all. Yeah. Yeah, it seems a little it seems a little strange and they're a little concerned. So the gamekeeper and his nephew are like, Yeah, okay, so the uh, the <laughs> prince up there, he's super into that that gal that just showed up and she doesn't say anything and I'm a little bit uncomfortable. And by the way, there is another woman in the prince's life. He was not completely oh, unattached. Yes. There okay. is another princess, a foreign princess. I see. That's probably a more suitable match. In the wings. Yes. I. Well, I mean, that's what many of his, his folk think. I mean, she probably speaks, we would hope. Right. Right. And well the 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 nephew even has said here he's so in love and it looks like he's going to marry her but there is there's this talk around the around the palace that maybe his love is waning and maybe he's he's turning his attention back to this this foreign princess. And the gamekeeper's relieved to hear this. He says God be praised, God be praised, bless him, give him peace. That's the prince. And maybe he'll go after this this foreign girl and leave this mysterious young woman alone. So he's kind of all over the place. It's like one minute he's maybe 
into the foreign princess. Then the next minute, he's into the mysterious water nymph slash not a water nymph. Well, and now we have a chance to see the prince again, and we'll hear just a little bit of his song where he continues to be enchanted and entranced by Rusalka because she's been living there at the palace near him for over a week. And he's a little concerned that the the give and take between the two of them is not terribly even. She doesn't share much with him. Well, because she doesn't talk. She's beautiful, she's loving, but in some respects, she's cold. It'd be really hard to get to know someone if they don't say anything. Right, and she's from an entirely different culture. Ah, yes, right. She's new to the world of human interaction. Right, right. Yeah, because he says, why is your embrace always cold? Why do you flee from passion? He says, but I cannot free myself from your embrace. You are frigid. He even uses that. At least that's how it's translated. But I must possess you. I must possess you. Let's hear a little bit of that. So the first blush of attraction we've had already. And now he's he's trying to see how it all plays out. Yeah. 
So we've just heard from the prince in Dvorak's Rusalka, but there was another voice there, and it did not sound like our soprano, Rusalka. That is the foreign princess. Aha. The one who would like to catch the prince's eye. Mm-hmm. But she is a very sophisticated woman. She does not antagonize the prince in any way. She sweetly chides him. My prince, you're, you're forgetting your duties as a host. Yes, you're in love with this beautiful creature, and of course you are. But your home is full of guests. You must be a proper host. And he's a little embarrassed that he hasn't done his part, that he has neglected his guests. And he thanks her and acknowledges more or less that she has done him a great favor by helping him out with his obligations, his social obligations. Hmm. And everyone notes that Rusalko has been oblivious to all of this. She's just a little clingy, honestly. Yeah. She's in this foreign world that she doesn't understand anything about other than she loves the prince. But all this other goings-on of a party and this other woman... It's just confusing to her. Understandably. And the princess takes advantage of all of this in her sophisticated way. She says, oh, her eyes show much tenderness, but is that the only way that you two can communicate? And the princess is helping to remind him of his obligations and to make sure he is a proper host. And she even turns to Rasalka and says, well, my dear, you need to go put on your ball gown. Get ready for this beautiful ball, after all. And... Rusalka's getting the sense that she's not doing everything the prince needs to do, but again, she's she's just out of her element, literally. Yeah, mm-hmm. like a fish out of water. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And one of the interesting things I find here is that through all of this, Vodnik, her father, is able to observe from his watery world what's going on and he is able to once again chime in with this poor rusalka oh poor dear rusalka she's she's pale and she's caught in a web of wordlessness but there's no going back and now once we have said we're going to get ready for entertaining our guests we're going to transition and we're going to be inside the palace and we're going to see this great ball that, the, that is being given as part of the festivities. And we're going to end this first half of Opera for Everyone with this festive chance for everyone to dance. And it'll be interesting because this is not Rusalka's element, but it is the element of the sophisticated foreign princess. And the prince notices. So she's, it's even worse than having two left feet. It's like the, this is the first time she's had feet. So she's not going to be a very good dancer. She doesn't understand the social expectations and 
she clearly has not been raised with the dancing lessons or even the use of feet. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. 
You're listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for a mainstream audience. It airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming. KHOL is Wyoming's only community radio station. Opera for Everyone is hosted by me, Keely Heron, And me, Pat Wright. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. And like our Facebook page, Opera for Everyone, where you can also send us a message. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoy the second half of today's episode. Welcome back to the second half of today's episode of Opera for Everyone. I'm Keely Heron. I'm Pat Wright. And on today's episode, we are listening to Rusalka by Antonin Dvorak. And as we begin the second half of today's program, I'd like to take a moment to recognize the artists who appear on the recording that we are listening today. So this is a recording that was made in Prague in 1961. And our title character, Rusalka, is played by Milada Schubertova. And our water sprite, her father, is played by Eduard Haken. Yezi Baba, the witch, is played by Marie Ukhadzikova. And the prince is played by Ivo Zidek. And the foreign princess, our mezzo-soprano, is sung by Elena Mikova. And my apologies to Czech speakers everywhere. (laughs) The opera was conducted by Zeynek Chalaba. It was recorded with the Prague National Theatre Chorus. So thank you. And I guess that brings us to... Actually, before you transition, it's worth noting that this is performed in Prague, which is also the city in which it premiered back in 1901. Ah, right. Which is a great segue to the next part of our show, which is the Opera Helmet Quiz. Yeah, put on that Opera Helmet. Fill us in with what has happened so far in our story. (laughs) Well, Pat, this opera, as you said, it premiered in 1901 in Prague. And it was written by Dvorak. Or actually, the libretto was brought to Dvorak as a completed libretto by Yaroslav Kvapil and... At that time, Dvorak had already been a fairly successful composer, and it was later in his career. And a wildly successful composer. A wildly successful composer. So it was later in his career, and this is probably one of Dvorak's, or it is arguably Dvorak's most famous opera. And he had previously been known as more of a as a composer. So this was a big feather in his cap. One of the things he said towards the end of his life is that he really considered being a composer of operas to be the pinnacle. It's what he really felt had the most complete expression of emotion and human experience. And he was he was very pleased to be devoting his energies to opera, in spite of all of his success with his symphonies and other songs. Well, I would agree. I, I've not paid much attention. Well, we all know that my attention is not great. Uh, but no, I like the music on this is gorgeous. So it premiered in 1901. And the story is set in sort of a mythical 
place that begins in, I guess, in a water world inhabited by sprites known as Rusalki in Czech. The story of Rusalka is loosely based on The Little Mermaid, which was a fairy tale by Hans Christian Andersen written in 1837. And this interpretation features the lead character, Rusalka, who is a water nymph, and her three sisters. It also has her father, who is known as Vodnik, or a water sprite, or water gnome, or water king, or whatever. And we begin the action in our mythical water world with her sisters singing about how happy their life is in in the water. And then we meet her father and Rusalka, and Rusalka is saying how she's in love with a human and he comes to swim and he can't see her because she is a nymph and appears to him just as a wave. And she's saying to her father, Vodnik, I would love to be part of his world. I'm in love with this man and I want to be human so that he'll see me and he'll fall in love with me and and I want to have a soul and I want to live in this human world. And uncharacteristic of opera characters, her father's like, yeah, okay, that sounds like an okay idea. Let's go see the witch. And so... With some caution, yes. <laughs> but normally a father in an opera is like, absolutely not. But he's like, okay, well, he takes her to the witch. So we meet the witch, Yezi Baba, who is... We're not really sure if she's a white witch or a, or a black magic type witch, but she has special powers. And so Rusalka cozies up to her and says, Yezi Baba, I would really like to go on land so that I can marry this prince that I, or this human that I'm in love with. And Yezi Baba says, okay, I can for sure do that for you. All I'm going to need is your invisibility veil or invisibility cloak or whatever it is that makes her... Your water veil. Your water veil, which makes her appear as a wave and otherwise invisible to humans. And on top of that, also, when you go into this human world, you will be mute. You will not have the power to speak. You won't be able to say a word. So Rosalka considers this briefly and she's like, okay, yeah, that sounds good to me. Okay, let's do that. So she <laughs> surrenders her water veil and her voice and Yezi Baba does an abracadabra aria where she transforms Rosalka into a human. So Rosalka goes on to land and the prince is having some kind of a hunting party or something. There's a big f- festival going on and he feels overcome by some kind of a magical spell and he dismisses everyone he says i need to be alone he catches like a chill so he sends everyone away and rosalka appears and he is in love and she doesn't speak and he's just besotted and feels like he's been overcome by some kind of magical power so he brings her back to the castle and p.s there's another princess that They were like maybe thinking that that was going to be his bride. She's a foreign princess, but she's a very cultured and sophisticated foreign princess. And so instead of getting jealous and saying unkind things about this mysterious, beautiful, mute 
magical water nymph slash not a nymph. She says, okay, prince, you have a party going on here. Like, maybe you should tend to your guests and how can I help you? And he's like, oh, okay, thank you. And then, so she kind of helps get everything going and then says, Rusalka, maybe you should go get ready for this party. We're going to have a dance. And Rusalka is just fish out of water. She is out of her element and has (laughs) no idea what is going on because she's never been in this world and she can't dance because she only just got feet like a week ago. And so they have this big ballet and this big party and it's beautiful and everyone's happy. And then after that, we go back to the water world and we hear from her father and he is able to say poor Rusalka what's going on there yeah he pops in frequently and says poor Rusalka poor Rusalka and I think that's is that where we left it Pat we left it with yeah we left on the music of the of the party of the ball yeah at the prince's place and the prince was like he was he was thinking that he was besotted with Rusalka but then the foreign princess kind of shook him back to reality and she was like you know there's this this Rusalka just she's a little bit odd she doesn't talk let me help you and so now we're left kind of in this ambiguous space where the prince may still be besotted with Rusalka but he right. may be in love with the princess we don't know yet we don't we don't really know and before we address that I just want to add a couple more things in about Dvorak because it's not part of the story, but it is part of the background because it's our composer. I had mentioned that he was born near Prague. He is Czech, of course, and this premiered in Prague. But I just wanted to throw in so that people know there was a three-year period of his life, 1892 to 1895, when he was so successful, he was brought over to New York City and he worked as the director of the National Conservatory of Music in New York City for those three years. Oh. And while there, he continued his compositional work and he was even given a commission by the New York Philharmonic. And that's where his Symphony Number no. 9 mm. premiered. The other interesting thing that I'll talk a little more between Act 2 and Act 3 about the, the nationalism growing in the Czech lands during the time that he's writing and prior to that as well. But I want to mention just in connection with him being in New York that he was very excited to go to the United States because he wanted to learn. He knew a little bit about what was characteristic of his native Czech lands, but he had no idea what the indigenous music of the United States was. And it's interesting, he believed and he advocated for the Americans not just to copy the Europeans, but to embrace Native American melodies, to embrace African American musical practices. And he said that's the only way I mean, he's, 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 I think he's sort of forecasting jazz a little bit. He says, if, unless you embrace particularly these native or these homegrown, I should say, these homegrown mm-hmm. forms of music that are not copying Europeans, 
blend them into everything else you can learn about music and that's how you're going to develop your own musical identity in the United States. Interesting. I found that I found that very very moving and and that's part of what he does with his own music in terms of his Czech heritage which is he tries to take some of the folk influences he, not entirely folk based but but influences from folk music of the Czechs and meld them into what he has learned with his more German training. Hmm. It's interesting that you say that, that because as you know, and it's amazing that I remember, Showboat was largely considered to be the first American opera. Right. Well, you did that particular one with Greg way back when in the early days of Opera for Everyone. And so the whole idea that you're talking about here of embracing the unique musical heritage of the United States, that our first foray into musical theater, which was the American interpretation of opera, essentially, focused on the songs of the South, the songs of the African-Americans and their lives and it was a particular interpretation but that that was just immediately what I thought of I thought it was well yeah and it's explicit in showboat when Julie sings fish gotta swim birds gotta fly and it's recognized as being from that heritage which is deeply connected with the story of showboat but that's but we digress that's another (laughs) that was a rabbit hole that was another episode so Back to our story, and we'll t- we'll talk a little bit more. But some of this information doesn't fit in with the with the narrative of the story, so I just shoehorn it in uh, periodically. We are in the ballroom of the prince's palace, and we've heard some of the the music for the dancing, and then the chorus is going to sing a little bit about their experience, and we've got Vodnik chiming in again with poor Rusalka. Poor Rusalka. She is caught. She can't speak, and he's very concerned that her wishes, her dreams, her plea to the moon will go unanswered. So let's hear a little bit of the chorus and a little bit of the water sprite showing his sympathy for Rusalka. Yeah, 
to Opera for Everyone, and today we are listening to Rusalka by Antonin Dvorak, and we have just heard from the chorus, which we all know that Pat loves a good chorus, <laughs> and Vodnik, <laughs> Rusalka's father, and he's saying, poor Rusalka, she's having a rough go. No red roses will decorate ever your bridal chamber, he tells oh. her, tells us. And we see Rusalka run away, and she goes back to the fish pond. We call it the fish pond from the vantage point of the palace, but she goes back to the place that feels like home. Mm -hmm. And her father is there, and he greets her, but she knows that she can't re-enter that world as a full participant anymore. And she says, Father, save me. I've betrayed you. And she realizes then that it's problematic to get tangled up with humans. Mm. Woe to him who knows the humans, she says. Alas, another's charm has captured him. Passionate human beauty, stranger am I to him. I don't have the passion that she has. She knew how to be seductive, that foreign princess. Oh, yes. And, and Rusalka is kind of frigid and cold. That's and the... he uses that word several times, the prince does, towards mm-hmm. her. And she says, it's, it's useless. None of my charms can match this other woman's because I'm only half a person. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know who I am anymore. Her eyes are burning with passion. And I was born from tepid water. So she's having a bad, bad time. She's mm-hmm. given up everything. And she sees that his attentions have turned towards this other woman. Yep. It's a rough day. Then we have a scene where the prince and the princess come out. And she is quite happy to display for one and all how she's charmed the prince. She says, oh, you're growing sweeter and warmer. You've changed. And and the implication here is, well, To what do we owe this change? You're such a better man now. Oh, it must be me. That's more or less what the princess is saying. Well, it's important. It's important to have confidence in oneself, Pat. Oh, she does. She is 
a princess. Of course. <laughs> she knows how this game is played. She does indeed. She does indeed. But the prince is beginning to have second thoughts. And he's wondering what's happened to Rosalka. Like, Any words for the prince? <laughs> Where's my little fishy? My cold little frigid fishy. It's a little bit like that. <laughs> but he's wondering. And, and, and the princess is, oh, you don't need her when you've got me. You don't need that cold fish cold lady thing. And you've, you've got me. And the prince realizes that he really does have something in this princess. And the princess coyly says, well, why now? Only now I realize that I'm being courted. The bridegroom doesn't even know his own mind. So she points out the obvious. The prince gets embarrassed. And at this, when he turns to the princess and says, how did I ever fall into that trap? I'll gladly tear up any contract I had with her because I'm in love with you, princess. At which point, Rusalka, who's been witnessing all this, runs out and throws herself into the prince's arms. And it, it, it terrifies him. And he says, well, you're cold as ice. You, you frigid beauty, cold and white. And he pushes her away because he doesn't want cold. Yeah. He wants that warm, burning passion Mm -hmm. that he had with the princess. And her father, of course, witnesses this as well. Mm -hmm. And he just once again... Poor, pitiful Rusalka. Yeah. Her father not only offers pity and sympathy, he literally drags her back into the water. Oh. And the prince sees this, and he... He, this, like, something's changed in him. Something's happened. He suddenly realizes there's a lot going on that he's missed. And the very final thing the princess says at the end of Act Two is into the nameless abyss of hell, hasten to rejoin your chosen one. She's like, that's it. I've had it. I've done my best. And if you're going to keep being attracted to her, I'm not going to play your game anymore. I'm not some little fish lady. She doesn't say that. I'm not, <laughs> uh, I'm, not to, I'm not ready to be toyed with. She says, just follow her. Well, but so does she have a voice now? Or is she like, is she singing now? That she's being pulled back into the pond? She does not sing so the people can hear her. It's just that she can still speak, sing, communicate with her father. Ah, Only when okay. she's interacting with Vodnik. Okay. All right. But we will hear more from her in Act 3. Thank <laughs> you. 
All right. So thus concludes act two. Just one act left. Was there something that you needed to remind us, Pat? Well, I wanted to speak just a little bit more about the influence of the nationalistic feeling in the Czech lands that ah, yes. the Dvorak was part of. I'm not sure that I mentioned, um, I can't pronounce in Czech very well, but Karol Jaromir Erbin, who wrote a collection of folk tales as also one of those elements that helped the librettist. Jaroslav Kvapil. It helped him along with the Hans Christian Andersen story, along with the German story, Undine, the, the Czech elements. These were all background pieces. And he's writing, not just because he thought it would be a nice thing to do to collect some stories, it's also part of this resurgence of interest in the Czech identity. Why is that an issue? Well, because from the time of at least the 11th century, Bohemia, which is where Prague is located, was part of the Holy Roman Empire and ultimately part of the Habsburg Empire. I mean, you may remember us talking something about the Holy Roman Empire mm-hmm. and the Habsburgs when we did Don Carlos. Yes, I do remember. And the King of Spain at one point was the Holy Roman Emperor. Because he was the Habsburg. He had to be elected, but he was in fact elected. He he was one of many Habsburgs to hold that throne as the Holy Roman Emperor. And that was set, by the way, Don Carlos was set in the mid-16th century. During this period, I'll just mention that there's religious tensions. It's uh, the Thirty Years' War people may or may not have heard of was in the in the middle of the 17th century early middle 17th century in that same region yes it's it's part of it mm-hmm. it, it is part of where the wars were fought and the very famous at least in history circles defenestration of prague that's where we all use the word defenestration does this ring any bells to you um i've heard the word defenestration and well, all, all it means is someone is thrown out a window. And that was, that was part of how the Bohemian Protestants rejected the Catholic Holy Roman Emperors trying to impose his will on the people. That's crazy. So, fenêtre is yes. French for window. That's why defenestration. That's so funny. I mean, not funny, but anyway. Okay, so... The Holy Roman Empire, they're rejecting it. The, the point here in terms of Czech nationalism is that with the fact that they had challenged the Holy Roman Emperor, when they lose this process of trying to stamp out Czech culture mm-hmm. increased. I see. And they wanted to make sure that the, the Czech people became more and more Germanized. Mm-hmm. In fact, in the latter part of the 18th century, Joseph II was Holy Roman Emperor. He's the Joseph II who who features in the movie Amadeus with Mozart in Vienna and all. He's, he's the Holy Roman Emperor. Hmm. He decrees that Czech language could no longer even be taught in schools. So a wow. great many of the educated people of the Czech lands grow up with German in their school system. In fact, Dvorak's very first opera, the libretto, was in German. German was considered to be the language of educated people. 
of the middle class, the aristocracy, whereas the Czech language for a long time was considered common, not mm -hmm. as sophisticated, not as, as elevated. Ultimately, after the Napoleonic Wars, there is another 19th century push towards restoring some of the, the Czech language and the Czech culture, and in fact, the theater, which ultimately becomes the national theater, is opened in, well, there's a provisional one in 1862, 1881, so we're, we're getting up towards yeah. the, the 20th century mm -hmm. here. The provisional theater and the national theater are, are established to perform full-blown works of art not just little sideshows, but full-blown respected works of art in the Czech language. And that was a huge deal because before that, opera was primarily performed in German, in Italian, in mm -hmm. French, whatever the original language mm -hmm. was. And it wasn't until mid-19th century that they were translating some works like Don Giovanni or Barbara of Seville into Czech to be performed and also composing original works in the Czech language. There's another effort by the Habsburg rulers to clamp down, but ultimately by the end of the 19th century into the 20th century, there is more and more respect accorded to the Czech language. And so Dvorak, you can see, fits neatly into this. He mm -hmm. he sees part of his role as a as an artist, yeah, to elevate cultural traditions, musical traditions, in his art, in his work, mm -hmm. and to be a voice for the for the Czech people, the Czech language, and to advocate for them and lift them up. Right, and acknowledge and celebrate their, their own heritage. Mm -hmm. I would be remiss not to just mention Smetana's name. He is another composer. He is pretty much the, the one who helps revive. He's less than a generation older than Dvorak, but he he's a great opera composer. The Bartered Bride is probably his most well-known work, and maybe we'll get to that one of these days as well. But it's, it's a great, rich musical history and uh, anyone who's listened to our Katya Kabanova opera for everyone will know that this is and he's he's about a half a generation younger yet than Dvorak but but this this Czech music is it's rich it's powerful stuff mm -hmm. and frankly I love it yeah well like I said I I haven't necessarily listened to a lot of Dvorak but it sounds so modern it sound it's just like it's very fresh. I don't know what else. I mean, it doesn't sound. I don't. I feel like I'm listening to something that's relevant now. It doesn't feel. Yeah. It, it it feels. It's there's a, a dynamism. It feels modern to me. And it's really lovely. So, thank you for teaching me all of that, Pat. It's really interesting. I mean, I this is why we started the show. Is I just always learn so much about not just the story of the opera but why it's important and how it came to be and so interesting and i didn't know that about the czech language or the history of the czech republic or any of that yeah well multinational empires can be can be very rough on local traditions language culture but they persevered but the but the czech people the czech language it endures Absolutely, and a, and a great amount of pride. This this theater I mentioned continues to produce great operas, including a lot of the great Czech operas, which are the classics, like the one we're talking about today, and, and modern as well. 
All right. Do you think we should get to act three now? Yes. That was a big <laughs> rabbit hole, but one I think that was uh, important. So we, we left off at the end of act two with Vodnik and Rusalka and the prince and Knezhna. And they were all talking about how poor Rusalka can't make it in the people world. And she's gone back to the water world. And that is where we ended Act 2. Right. And Act 3 is going to open on the shore by the lake where the water nymphs had been playing before, where Rusalka had sung her song to the moon. We're back at this lake, but she's on the shore and she doesn't look good. Mm. Her hair is ashen. Her eyes are dull. She's pale. She's a shadow of her form herself. Mm-hmm. And she laments all that she's lost she is of neither world at this point Mm -hmm. not of human and not of water guess who comes out to see what she can do to help ah the witch yejibaba you got it she comes out and she says so how's it going things didn't go so well with the humans did they you want a sandwich (laughs) oh no rusalka is beside herself mm-hmm. she doesn't she doesn't know where to turn what to do and Yejibaba has a few tricks up her sleeve and she says I have something that you might like to take advantage of I can help you rejoin your people in the water mm-hmm. let's hear a little bit from Yejibaba Thank you. 
listening to Opera for Everyone, and this is Rusalka by Antonin Dvorak, and we've just heard from Yeji Baba, the witch, and she said to Rusalka, um, I think I can help you. I think I can help you a little bit. So what did she say, Pat? How is she going to help Rusalka? Yeji Baba says, only human blood can cleanse you from nature's curse. What? From the love which you were seeking. What? And the blood? needs to come from the princess the prince the prince uh-oh yeah she holds out a knife what 
Yejibaba takes out a knife and holds it out to Rusalka and says, Get her done. You need to get warm human blood from that man. Ugh. Any guesses about Rusalka's response? Um, well, I mean, she was kind of torqued off at him, so maybe she's open to that? I don't know. No. She says, I'd rather be cursed forever with all of my unrequited love than to kill him. Well, does she have to kill him, or couldn't she just, like, cut him and get the blood and come back? Or <laughs> just... No, I, I think she's supposed to kill him. Because, I mean, that... let's... She Yeshi didn't bring Baba. a lawyer to this conversation. Well, <laughs> y- 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 the way that you're interpreting the libretto patch, she did not say, you've got to kill him. She said, I need some blood. But... Apparently, I mean, it is enough. You know, okay. Keely, if only you had been there to advise her. I know. Back in the <laughs> whatever hundreds in the water, water world, mythical water world, I would have said, listen, <laughs> we can make this a win-win. We can make this work. What is the just best alternative? <laughs> yeah, it's just a flesh wound. The best alternative to a negotiated agreement would be just, you know, just a, just a small vial of blood. You know, I'm not finding the words here in the libretto, but I think she's meant to kill him. But like I said, it could have been all different. I can just see you rushing in from the wings of the stage to say, wait, sister. (laughs) (laughs) Yeji Baba, hold your horses. (laughs) Okay, so she's got a knife. Yeji Baba gives up on her. Rizalka says no. Yeji Baba says, well, can't help you anymore. Oh. Stay there with your ashen hair. Yeah. She's like, good luck to you, sister. Uh Uh-huh. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And she stays there. She's sad. The nymphs, her sisters, are like, oh, well, you can't come back with us. You look terrible, by the way, sister, former sister. And then we have the gamekeeper and his Nephew. nephew show up again. And they are confused. Can they see her? Who they see is Yeji Baba. And they have come to Yeji Baba because she is a witch with many potions. And they say, our prince is very sick. He needs your help. It doesn't go well. Again, Yeji Baba is so fed up with this whole thing. Like, yeah. Enough, enough of this yeah. love mess. You and your people with your human <laughs> stuff. Not into this. Right. He's he's terribly sick. The witch doesn't help. And now it's time for Vodnik to show up. The water king. And he's disgusted with them all. Yeah. Because they're people. And he sees what people have done to his beloved daughter. Mm-hmm. It's like, this is just a bunch of shenanigans. <laughs> That's about it. And we hear some more from our those three water creatures, the ones who've remained in the water, the sisters. And ultimately, after all this concern about the prince, who runs onto the scene? The prince. The prince himself. He's so sick. When he realizes he's lost that beautiful, enchanting, charming, mute woman, Mm -hmm. he kind of loses it. He kind of goes crazy. And he, he has no further interest in the princess, for whom he declared unending love not long before. (laughs) <laughs> no interest in her. <laughs> I think Rusalka should reconsider her. He seems a little unstable. 
this well, prince. Well, yes, if, if only she'd known before she drank yeah. that first potion. Right? Yeah, he's got some <laughs> commitment issues for sure. But he runs to find her. He realizes she is the one for him. And he realizes he cannot live his life without her. Hmm. Okay. Let's hear from the prince. So what is he saying there, Pat, when he keeps saying Be la moye lani? What is that what is he saying over and over again in that song? He's saying, Where are you? Where are you, my white doe? Be- because remember he was hunting that first time? Oh right. He saw her mm-hmm. in her human form, mm-hmm. not in her wave form. Mm-hmm. He he wants to recapture that first glimpse of her with the love at first sight he's realized that this is where his heart is with her Hmm. even though she didn't fit into his world Mm -hmm. he realizes that this is where love is to be found for him this is what truly matters and he even sings i'm going to look for you in the moonlight mist there's the moon again right search for you all over the earth Fairy tale, fairy tale, come to me. Hmm. It's it's fascinating. And he says, but but where are you? By all that lives in my heart, I entreat both heaven and earth. I entreat God and the demons too. Speak to me. Speak to me. Where are you? But she doesn't answer. Well, interestingly, she does. Wait, what? 
Did did Yejibaba lift her? Don't ask me the details. She shows up. <laughs> and and she says, "Do you know me? Do you know who I am?" And he's surprised. He says, "If you're dead, just kill me. Kill me now. Kill me quick. And if you're alive, save me." And she says, "Well, I'm not alive and I'm not dead. I'm not part of any world. Oh, my poor wretched love, she says, I I once was your sweetheart, but now I can only be your death. So she's not part of the water world and she's not part of the human world. And he says, well, I can't live without you. And she she more or less says, well, you kind of had your chance. (laughs) No, she didn't say that word, but that's the message a little bit and she says it's past it's it's not going to happen wow the train has left the station and he says well kiss me and she says but i can't kiss you because if i kiss you now i will kill you that's part of what yeji baba's pact included if she kisses him at this point Ah. She doesn't have to use the knife. See, if she used the knife and he was like a sacrifice, she could be cleansed. But now if there's any fulfillment of this love between them, the kiss, it will be death to him and no salvation to her. Boy, Yejibaba drives a hard bargain here. Yes. Yes, she does. (laughs) And the prince repeatedly will say, just kiss me, give me peace. Never shall I return to the world. In other words, he understands that it will kill him. Mm -hmm. She's told him that. He believes it. He acknowledges it. But he says, kiss me. I need peace. And I can only get that through fulfillment with you. And it's interesting because for this huge love story between the two of them, this is the first time they're singing together. Oh, yeah, right. In this very final few moments of the opera. Ah, yeah, because for a huge chunk of the opera, she was mute. Exactly. And when he's there, she's not singing with him. Right. It's always past each other or away from each other. But she repeats again, don't you know that if I embrace you, you'll only find death there? And he says, yes, I know, but just kiss me and give me peace. And after telling him several times and him acknowledging it, she embraces him and she kisses him. She says, my love will freeze all sentiments, yet I must take you into my arms and you will die. And he says, kiss me, give me peace. And ultimately he dies. Finishing up, the water sprite, Vodnik, her father, will come up and say, In vain he shall die in your arms. In vain is this sacrifice, poor, pitiful Rusalka. She kisses the dead prince and says, You loved because you were good, but because you were humanly fickle, because of all which makes up my fate, God have mercy on you, human soul. So it gets back to this idea of the soul. Mm -hmm. And she is keenly aware that he has a soul. And she's asking for God's mercy on the soul. And she slips back down into the lake to be this ashen shadow of her former self 
for all time not part of that world with her sisters and her father. Wow. The price of love. Yeah. Humans are complicated, aren't they? Mm. <laughs> so that's the end of our story. And we'll go out on the final piece of music from Dvorak's Rusalka.
Thanks for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I'm Keely Heron. And I'm Pat Wright. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. And like our Facebook page, Opera for Everyone, where you can also send us a message. We know that opera can be challenging. But everyone loves a good story. And a story set to music is even better. That's why our mission is to make Opera opera for for everyone. everyone.